In the month of July, in the year 1874, the king of Cambodia was thrown from his horse-drawn carriage, landed in the middle of the road, knocked unconscious. But not a single one of his servants would lay a finger on him. In fact, they helped him not at all. They just stood there. If it hadn't been for a guy from Europe who happened to come along about that time, uh, he got him up, took him back to the palace. The reason they didn't help him was because it was taboo for anyone to physically touch the king for any reason without his express command. Of course, he was unconscious, so they just left him lay there. In certain tribes in Indonesia, a man doesn't believe in tying knots or sitting with his legs crossed while his wife is pregnant. He fears it might result in a problem pregnancy. When it comes to eating, the priests of the Luango coast of West Africa do not eat or even look at a variety of animals and fish. However, they can drink fresh blood if they choose to. Oh, that's just creepy. The head priest of the Maasai tribes of southern Kenya and northern Tanzania, he is only allowed to eat milk and honey and roasted goat livers. Now, you don't, don't find goat livers as much anymore uh, around here. If he eats anything else, he might lose his uh, magical powers that he has, supposedly. And the diet of the king of Unyoro in Central Africa was even more specific. He could never eat vegetables or, or mutton, but he lived primarily on beef and milk. But even that had to come from animals less than a year old, and he could not drink milk or eat the beef at the same meal. And if he did drink the milk, it had to come from a special sacred herd of exactly nine cows. Now, aren't those unusual rules and laws and requirements? And to our cultured minds, it sounds pretty bizarre, though I'm sure some of you might want to try some of that good stuff. You hardly get goat livers anymore at Cracker Barrel. But over time, here's what happens. Christians especially... We've come up with some of our own taboos in the course of time. They vary for different groups, but they still take place. For example, until lately, to be a really good Christian, you could not drink, dance, smoke, play cards, go to movies. And believe it or not, there are still churches today that hold some of those particular views. Some Amish groups don't allow their faces to be reproduced in photographs or art. Some Pentecostal groups refrain from watching television, and they do not allow women to wear pants or makeup, no matter how bad it's needed, or cut their hair. Can't do that. And as recently as the 1970s, some Baptist groups considered it inappropriate for young boys and girls to to go swimming together. Now, where do we come up with these ideas? It seems that that most of these come up, I think, in an attempt to clarify what has been called the gray areas of life. The term is not found in Scripture, but the dictionary defines a gray area as a situation in which it is difficult to judge what may be right or wrong. And it's these kind of thorny issues that the Bible doesn't always deal with directly. And as a result... You know, we have some disagreements. And as long as there have been Christians, 
there's been a struggle to just determine how best to handle some of these situations. Let me give you an example. The Christians who live in a place called Corinth in the Bible, we read about them in the letter to the Corinthians. This is a city in ancient Greece. And the New Testament here, written by the Apostle Paul, answered a bunch of questions that the Corinthian people had. These were new Christians. They were living in a pagan environment. And they had some issues. There were gray issues that they were struggling with. And Paul spent a good part of 1 Corinthians answering those questions. And his answers to them can provide some wisdom for us. The Corinthian Christians had at least uh, a number of gray areas, but the specific one that gave them the most uh, concern was the practice of eating meat that had been used in a sacrifice to a pagan deity or a pagan god. Now, that's again, that's, we don't have those kind of issues today so much. It seems maybe foreign to us. However, it was as real to them as maybe the issue of whether Christians can, can socially drink. You know, a lot of Christians struggle with this. I mean, is it okay to, to have a beer or a glass of wine or whatever? And so the Corinthian Christians were asking Paul to help them know what to do in these situations. Because some believers were strongly convicted against it. Other believers said, well, that didn't seem like it was a big deal. So here's the history. In the first century A.D., the Christian church was fairly new. The religious scene was cluttered with all kinds of different worship of idols and so forth and so on. So making sacrifices to the pagan Greek and Roman gods was not an uncommon thing that went on in the neighborhood. You could have neighbors that were doing this even after you became a Christian. And when your neighbor next door went to the temple to offer a sacrifice to whatever pagan idol that they did, only a part of the meat that was offered was actually burned on the altar. In other words, a lot of steak and roast and hamburger was, uh, was left over. So when an idol was worshipped publicly at a pagan temple, some of this leftover food was given to the priest, and then the rest of it went to either the temple butcher, which was, they had that as well, and they also had a temple restaurant, which we know from the scriptures. But in the case of private worship, your next door neighbor might have had some leftover meat and he's throwing it on the grill next door and he invites you to come over and have some with him and the decision's got to be made. Now that, that, that's the general issue. Here's the specific one. The first century Christians were faced with three sticky little problems. First was that problem with the restaurant I mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 10, Paul says, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you eating in an idol's temple. That, that's the reason they were eating there was because they, they had a restaurant there. If anyone sees you doing that, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Now, that was the question. Now, keep in mind, believers in the first century, had, they had no church building. There was no temple. They met from house to house to house. The Corinthian church worshipped that way and in addition, at that time, many of the areas were pantheistic. There were so many gods, nobody cared. You know, you'd have a neighbor, they didn't care if you were, you were followers of Jesus Christ. They just thought, well, that, that's good for you. You know, in a way, we're not a whole lot different from some of that even today. I've always believed everybody worships something. But it's interesting here to see how Paul advised them 
Because we live in a world where, in a sense, it's not quite like this, of course, but we do live in a world where there's a lot of people that do not embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. Amen? So you have to do maybe your neighbors, friends, co-workers, people you go to school with, work with. And so there's going to be questions that come up. So the general issue, again, was that having to, how do you deal with this? The specific issue, and they face this problem. The first was a restaurant one. And Paul says, hey, if you've got a weak conscience, then, then don't do this. By the way, the modern version of these folks that were really, really legalistic about all these kind of things, uh, you know, they, they were like what we call Pharisees, modern Pharisees from even further back in biblical times. By the way, if you also want an example of this kind of mindset that everything is okay and any God's okay, that's called the Unitarian Universalist Church. Have you ever seen one of those? We have two up here in Bloomington, I know of for sure. And the Unitarian Universalists believe that all roads lead to heaven. All of them go, whatever you happen to believe in is okay, and you can go to that church, I guess. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they have, maybe they have services for each group, maybe over the course of a year. I'm not really sure. But here's the problem for us. If your non-Christian friend or neighbor invited you to do something like this, right into the temple of their God, what do you do? That was the, the, the issue there in that church in Corinth. If you go, you know, do you, do you always go to the restaurant temple and sit down and have a meal or, or not? The second problem was not the restaurant thing, but it was the meat market problem. Because you could also go back during the week to the meat market, and the meat that was sold there had also been left over from sacrifices to pagan idols. But you got the same issue. And then there was the, what you might call the private dinner party issues. This is where your neighbor or your friend or somebody you work with is having a party and they're serving food left over from these idol-worshiping experiences. What do you do? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and 10, actually goes all the way across there, Paul offers some struggling believers some help. And he gives them two principles to guide their lives. These principles are just as relevant today as they were all those many years ago. Here's the first one. It is the principle of liberty. Paul begins by reminding the Corinthian Christians of two things they already knew about. We find them in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, about this food sacrifice to idols, notice what he says. We know that we all possess knowledge. That's interesting he says this. What he's talking about, he's reminding these Corinthian Christians that they're no longer bound under any legalistic system. Jesus came and died on the cross to free us from the bondage of legalism. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. Not freedom to do anything we want to do, of course, but we have the freedom to do the things that we ought to do. And Paul makes it pretty plain here that these folks no longer had to live according to a code of ethics in order to please God. I hope you know that. I hope we've talked about that enough. We preached through Galatians a while back and kind of beat on that quite a bit. That we have freedom in Christ. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. Now, it doesn't mean we go out and sin just so, so you know, we can get more grace, the scripture says. But the penalty is paid. Jesus dealt with it at the cross. 
And in verse 4, this was so important that Paul repeats himself. He says, so then about eating food sacrifices to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there's no God but one. There's nothing about an idol that matters. The believers in Corinth had been taught correctly that all these idols of the pagan worshipers were nothing more than just wood or stone or jewels or whatever that the actual idol was made of. It had no spiritual significance. It was not alive. Verse 5, For even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, for us, he says, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So taken together, what these two points do is that they, they let them know that there's really nothing wrong with a Christian eating meat sacrificed to some idol. Now, this is that first principle of liberty. But just in case, and this is important for us too, just in case this principle would be misapplied, He gave us the principle of love. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds, builds up. See, knowledge can make a person arrogant, but love edifies and encourages. And just as cement without water doesn't make a sidewalk, knowledge without love does not produce the kind of godly behavior that God would like to see from his church. And from his followers. And the Apostle Paul explains this in very clear verses 7 through 13. He says, not everybody knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. And we're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. But be careful, he said. This is the principle so important. Be careful that the exercise of your freedom as a Christian, does not become a stumbling block for those believers who are new and young and weak in their sense of faith. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols? Now that's the context of what we read earlier. So this weak brother for whom Christ died can be destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you're going to sin against Jesus. So therefore, now here it is, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause him to fall. Now you see, the, you hear the conviction that Paul's seeking here. He's wanting us to think not of what we want to do or like to do or feel like it's okay to do. He wants us to do whatever is going to edify other people. This is why Christians, you just don't do any and everything you want to do. Especially when you're trying to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Some of the Corinthians have been Christians for so long that they they had this principle of liberty down pat. They could buy a steak at the temple market, go home and enjoy it, throw it on the grill. It didn't bother them. It wasn't a concern to them. But others were spiritually toddlers in a sense they were young in their faith and fresh out of the background of idol worship to begin with eating this meat brought back all those memories you know they'd been told you know you're now you're a christian you're different but all their friends they lived in this other world by the way does that resonate with anybody i mean 
it's okay for us to come out here and have our little holy huddles and the world really doesn't have to know about it. Really. I mean, our neighbors kind of know what we do over here, but I'm not sure they know everything. We'd love to have them come and find out. But I'm talking about your world outside the doors of Maple Grove Christian Church's building. I'm talking about your conduct, your perspectives, your attitude, the way you think when you're out in your jobs and out where you, you, you live. And do you struggle with the gray area sometimes? Is should I do this or should I not? Well, that's, what I'm hoping happens this morning is that you're going to get some guidelines and principles that will help you as you move into this. Now, don't want you to miss this. Paul is saying one of the strongest evidences of your maturity, my maturity, is the extreme to which we exercise. It's not our exercise of liberty so much. It's the, the restraints we are willing to impose on ourselves for the sake of others. Now, you fill in the blank in terms of whatever modern-day scenario fits what we're talking about because you know what they are. But what I want to do is I want to help you. He uses five questions here to help us know a little more about what's going to happen in terms of our dealing with this issue. And he describes three types of people to start with. This is important. All right? If you're writing this down, here's the first type of person. It's the person who's weak. This would be the new believer. He doesn't have knowledge of what's going on. He may be easily offended. They may be sincere, maybe even in their walk with Christ, but they can be easily misled. And we have who are older and in our faith, more mature, we have a responsibility to encourage them and help them. Those are the weak. Then you have the legalists. By the way, the word legalist is not in the Bible, but the concept is. Galatians, if you want to go to Galatians 5, 1 through 8, talks all about legalism. But the point is, nowhere in Scripture are we told we must modify our behavior out of respect for legalists. We're never told that. Legalistic Christians are believers who conform to a code of behavior for the purpose of lording it over others or just impressing others. I mean, the typical Jewish Pharisee who was always harassing Jesus, always aggravating the apostles, this legalistic Pharisee should have his picture in the dictionary under legalism. What you want to avoid is not having your picture in the dictionary under legalism. You don't want to do that. So you've got the weak, you've got those who are legalists, and the third type of person is the free. These are the people who clearly understand the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. But they voluntarily restrict their behavior out of love for others and for God's glory. They don't argue about it. You just voluntarily are convicted that you're not going to cause somebody else to stumble even if you have freedom to do some of these things that you're talking about. So, here's some questions. Okay, this is important. Question number one, what should you give up? Some of you may be already thinking about some things. I'm not so sure I like this sermon. You know, this might not be taking us down the road we ought to go. Well, you know, what should you give up? There's nothing gray about the Bible's teachings about a lot of things. Adultery, fornication, drunkenness, all that's pretty clear. We're not talking about it. That's not a gray area. In other areas, right and wrong, though, is not so clearly spelled out. And that's where we need the help. And the Bible gives us two principles to guide us, to determine the things we should give up. And these guidelines can be seen in the passage we just looked at. All right. 
first principle has to do with personal things, their personal perspective. Here it is, number one. You and I need to avoid anything that causes us to stumble or be weakened in our faith. Job one. If you know already where your weaknesses lie, then you do everything you possibly can, you know, to stay away from opportunities, stay away from sources that would cause you to stumble in that particular area of weakness. And by the way, again, it's your conscience. And you know what? If you ask the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit to guide you and prompt you, you will never, ever hurt when it comes to knowing what you should do or shouldn't do. Because the scriptures tell us that, that we will be convicted if, of sin in our life. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. And he said, hey, you know, is this what you're really supposed to be doing? Is this going to please the Lord Jesus Christ? Will this be a good witness for his church? So that's a big deal. That's the first principle. John 16, 7, 8 through 8 says, I tell you the truth. It is good. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, which is the Holy Spirit, he's not going to come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, what's he going to do? He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's an that's important first principle here. The principle of, of avoiding anything that causes us to stumble. Principle number two. You also avoid anything which causes your Christian brother or sister to stumble and be weakened. In other words, you limit your freedom for the sake of other people. Those are things that must be done in public. And you'll see how they apply if you keep your eyes open, your heart open to the Lord. He will help you do that. Now, those those two principles go with question one. What should we give up? Here's question number two. How do you maintain a balance? Because there's always going to be somebody you're going to run into who will object to something that you do or say or talk about. If you lived a few days, you know it's impossible to what? Please everybody. If you're a pleaser, bless your heart, you're going to be one tired person by the time you get to heaven. Because you can't please everybody. It's never going to happen. But before we decide whether to change our behavior for someone else, we should ask ourselves a couple of questions. This is not on the screen. This is free stuff here, by the way. Is the party that's objecting to what you're doing, do they, are they really trying to grow in the Lord? Or is this person just wanting to sit in judgment on others? And more important would be, how many others are going to be affected by what I do as a result of me exercising my liberty? What kind of impact is it going to have? If you're in an area of the country or the world where certain things are offensive to large numbers of people, you need to sometimes lay down your right to freedom. One of the biggest problems that we have when we take uh, trips to uh, Israel or the Holy Land, we take Christian trips there. I've done this several times. One of the problems, though, we always have and we are cautioned about has to do with wandering into somebody else's country and thinking we can just do any, anything we doggone want to do because we're Americans. I have seen some Christians act really, really bad in somebody else's backyard. I've seen it. And it, it was tough. There was a place we could go. As David, I, I mentioned this before. We could go to David's tomb. And the only problem with David's tomb there in Jerusalem is that only men can enter the place where David is buried. And ladies, I love you guys. I love you dearly. 
But I've met some of your kind that took great exception to that rule. Now, what those men did, I respected them for. There were men that said, okay, I'm not going to go into this thing because my wife can't go. Now, that's noble. It also means that he's scared to death. You know, he didn't want to have to deal with that all the way back home, you know. But that's a choice that Christians need to be careful about. Because, again, we are not on our turf. You know what? They love us in Israel. They really do. We bring people there, and it's a pilgrimage to the place where all of our common faith started in that part of the world. And, uh, and I've just uh, been so blessed to be able to go there. We'd like to go back again uh, in not too distant future, hopefully. But the bottom line is, the reason that they like us, Palestinians and Jews, is because we bring a lot of money to their country. Their livelihood, like, the, for example, the, the economy of Bethlehem, you know, right outside of Jerusalem, not too far. The entire economy rests on tourism. And you know, almost all of that area is Palestinian. So the Jews don't go there at all. So when we come down there, you know, we go and we, we eat. With, they, they treat us like royalty, you know. Now, you can imagine the impact we would have if we were snotty and snooty and aggravating and whatever. You know, they wouldn't want you to come back. And... Maybe there's places that people don't want you to come back to. All because of an attitude. You've got to be careful. Now that was free. I, I, I don't know where I'm at now because I lost my place. Okay. All right. Question number three. How do you handle the legalist? We all know one. At least one. I'm sure you do. So it's very, very simple. You do what Jesus did without necessarily being rude. Your first option is just simply to ignore the legalist. Don't worry about it. Just... Just don't worry about them. Just go on doing what you know to be right in the Lord's eyes. All right, that's, that's pretty easy. The second option would be you take this person aside and have a little chat. And just say, you know, here's where you should be biblically. Here's what you should be doing, but you're not doing that. And if you're able to do that and, they, and you have their trust, then hopefully that will really be a, a blessing. But question number three. Everybody loves this one. If nobody's looking, can I just do as I please? That, that's the, that is the question that is so popular, uh, especially among younger Christians, I think. But here's what I would say to that. You've got to remember, first and foremost, God is always looking. Others may not be, but he is. And so as a result of that, you know, and clearly spelled out in Scripture here, uh, you, you need to know he sees what you do. Question number five. If I'm a public, in a public place and I want to enjoy something, should I? Okay, this gets back to, the, again, the meat, eating the meat thing. But the answer is summed up in chapter 10, verse 31. Look at this. Paul says, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Consider your circumstances. Are you with unbelievers? Or even believers who maybe don't think anything about whatever it is you're doing. You know, then that's fine. Or if you're in the presence of a weaker brother or a sister who might object, then let love, the principle of love is so crucial here, just let that be your guide. And you yield to their conscience, giving up what maybe you could ordinarily do, you know, or are free to enjoy. Now, let me close. When you think about it, every Christian is in one of those three categories. 
Remember when they were? You're either weak in the weak category, you're new to your faith, don't have a lot of, your convictions aren't, I mean, they're there, but they're not, you know, you're not, they've not been strengthened by being in the Word and, and, and being involved in, in the church and so on. So you may be among that category of the weak. We also, at times, can be legalistic. We don't want to do that, you know. Either you're one of the weak, or you're one of the legalists, or maybe you're free. And whenever you, wherever you are in your spiritual maturity, you can all benefit, all of us, from just two final suggestions, and I'm going to close. Here's the first suggestion. If you seek balance, if you really are listening to this, if maybe the trial of this gray area may be a big deal to you, you know, as you look at your life and you look at your witness, you know, well, if you seek balance, enjoy your liberty, but keep the right attitude regarding your weaker brother or sister. Be sensitive to others, in other words. Secondly, if you're in the weak category, then you've got to keep growing. You need to get into the scriptures. You need to make a study of what it means to be free in Christ Jesus. You need to embrace the grace that Christ offers us and stop trying to please God through rules and keeping laws because that's not what the Bible's about. And then if you kind of lean toward legalism, and there may be some of you here, we love you, I want you to know that. But if you do, ask God to soften your heart. Ask God to send people in your life that can help kind of temper that uh, self-righteousness that rises up sometimes in our hearts. And if you let God help you, he will keep your critical spirit from ruining your witness and wounding a lot of potential friends. Heavenly Father, what an interesting but yet necessary topic in a culture right now where we're so divided and our opinions and ideas and perspectives trump everything else at sometimes. And it's like we don't even know what to do. So Father, we ask for the courage to keep doing the things we know we should do, but also the the humility to keep constantly looking and reading in the word and, and, and letting you de- grow us up and develop our sensitivity to the truth of scripture and the power we have is free in Christ Jesus. But even at that, being sensitive to the weaker individuals, the folks that have not traveled maybe as far as some, some have. Help us be alert. Help us not be one of these Christians that becomes a stench in the nostrils of everybody we know. But at the same time, help us never compromise the faith just for the sake of getting along. Sometimes it's a lonely road, Father, as a Christian. But we're never alone, are we? Because you give us the strength and grace. You empower us with everything we need to live a life of godliness. My prayer, Father, for all of us is that we'll live out that life of godliness in the eyes of those around us in a way that attracts them and not pushes them away. In the Lord Jesus' name I pray.